I think that it's just a really great honor to be part of a generation of founders that I think actually have a mandate to do something different besides just scaling successful companies. If you're not building a database of talent the same way that you're investing in your sales or your marketing database, you're throwing away the opportunity to have cumulative value over time. It's actually not that hard to have a program designed for more than two races. It's actually not that hard to lens the things you do to accommodate lots of different types of people. Hiring is one of the most collaborative functions inside a whole company, right? Literally everybody in the company needs to interview. Every single manager needs to make hiring decisions. You gotta be a little naive <laughs> to be a successful early stage founder. We just shot out a bunch of emails, introducing ourselves and saying what we wanted to do. And turns out that like somebody might say yes. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Mikkel Svane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Sarah Nam to Founder Real Talk. Sarah is the co-founder and CEO of Lever. Lever builds modern recruiting software for teams to source, interview, and hire top talent. Prior to Lever, Sarah spent time at Google, and before that, she did her undergraduate degree at Stanford, where she earned a Bachelor of Science in Product Design and Mechanical Engineering. Sarah is a self-described designer founder, which is a topic I'm looking forward to discussing with her today. Sarah, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Hey, Glenn. It's good to be here. Awesome. So before we go into your experience founding and building Lever, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background, which uh, seems to have played a big role in what you're doing today. You grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. That's right. Not the hotbed for startup CEO talent, I don't, at least not to my knowledge. And I'm going to ask you a little bit about Alabama and its impact on your style as a CEO in a minute. But First, you ended up at Stanford, which, again, a pretty big journey from Birmingham. What attracted you to come out west to Stanford? And you studied there product design and mechanical engineering. Design has become hot, but you know maybe when you made that decision, it was not quite the hot thing that it is to do today. Like, What led you to Stanford? What led you to, into design and, and ME? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in many ways, you know, me... 10, 15 years ago would be pretty surprised at uh, where I am today. I never thought I would work in tech. I never thought I would be part of starting a company. I never thought I'd be the CEO of a technology company. And in many ways, a lot of what led me to here were probably making some critical choices at these kind of major junctures, right? Like, what was I going to do after graduating from high school? What was I going to do after mm -hmm. college? Uh, that, you know, I think I'd roughly boil down to when I can see kind of a fork in the road you know, and you can look down one path and it makes sense. You know, you can kind of see how one thing would lead to the next thing, would lead to the next thing for the next few years. And then you see another path that you have no, can you swear on this podcast? Like <laughs> effing clue what's going to happen. You know, for better or for worse, I just pick 
door number two. And that was very much, you know, when I was in Alabama, like nobody from my high school ever really went into technology. I wasn't even thinking about that at the time. Actually, I was the first person in I think nine years, they said, that went to California for college. So, you know, it just definitely seemed like the bigger mystery. And I think like the part of me that loves problem solving and and in that sense, like loves working on the problems that technology kind of affords, like that part of me just always like, yeah, picks that path that makes no sense. And so (laughs) I had a version of that when I was in school thinking about like, what did I want to study? Because I actually spent the two first years at college, you know, not knowing at all what I wanted to do Mm. and had always been a bit of a generalist and had always been kind of embarrassed about that. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think well, I spent all four of my years at Stanford not knowing what I wanted to do. Right? So you were ahead of me. Yeah. So, you know, in that sense, like I had tried a bunch of things and all of them just felt like that path number one. I could see how I could get better at this. I could see how I could take this class that would lead to that class that would mm. lead to these career paths. And, you know, the kind of progress like felt pretty linear, you know, like the one-on-one classes were like 101 classes, and then the next was a little bit harder, but you'd master them. It all just felt really safe and kind of boring. (laughs) Interesting. And so I think what felt really pivotal for me, certainly in becoming the person that I am today, was kind of stumbling upon the design program at Stanford. And, you know, it's less about like what it is so much as how I think it made like me realize that there were like things I could do that would combine like all these different parts of my skills and my brain and like like present challenges in this completely new way. So like the design program at Stanford for anybody (laughs) listening is a little bit of an atypical program because instead of designing beautiful things, it's really a program kind of anchored in a discipline called human-centered design that sits at the intersection of engineering and technology, but also art, aesthetics, that sort of thing, and mm-hmm. also psychology. And the psychology dimension is basically like to truly innovate, to truly design things that are driving innovations. You want to actually be able to understand and articulate people's needs. And, you know, I had always been decent at academic subjects, right? Like, so the engineering math side, I could kind of get like how that was a part of it. The art side, like I actually had always been a little creative. So that kind of made sense to me. But what totally just like hit me like a ton of bricks that I use every day as a founder is this kind of thing of figuring out what are people's needs. And I think the program at Stanford goes a lot further than that because it's also about how do you communicate those to other Mm. people. Mm. So I just got seduced by how hard it was (laughs) and how like no amount of academics, no amount of studying could like make you better at that. And that was what just totally like seduced me into it as well as like a lot of the things that go into the discipline like rapid prototyping and like, you know, vetting a lot of your things with real people and solving real problems. I mean, all that stuff, like it all just jived for me. So uh, net net, I do think that discovering that design program at Stanford made me into a technologist, made me into a founder, (laughs) probably made me into an entrepreneur in my own special way. So huge debt that I owe to those folks. Um, but it also probably meant that the way that I come about it is probably different than people that come from like a computer science background or business school background or okay, anything cool. like that. Okay, cool. I want to ask about how these learnings around design and being a door number two kind of person has infused your style as a CEO and leader. But let's get to that in a second. 
I next wanted to ask a little bit about just the founding of Lever. You were at Google out of school, as was your co-founder, Nate Smith, and you guys met there. Google obviously has a lot of smart people running around. So I'm sure if you decided to start a company, you would have a long list of people you might consider starting it with. So I guess two questions for you. A, what led you to decide, I need to start a company? You were still pretty new out of school to do that. And then the decision to join forces with Nate. Why did you decide he was the right co-founder? And then how did you guys figure out who was going to do what? Yeah, well, credit for early, early inception of Lever really goes to Nate. He was first boots on the ground. He, you know, truly did that, you know, sort of miraculous birth that happens when something like truly isn't a thing and then Mm -hmm. suddenly there's a thing. And like literally Nate was kind of working at this thing called Lever for maybe like six months before I ever really rolled into the picture. So, you know, basically this is definitely the the hero story of, of Nate getting things started. And, you know, at the time that I reconnected with Nate, you know, the very first spark that we had was a shared interest in the future of work. And there weren't that many people that were really passionate about B2B at this time, which is like circa 2012. And, you know, why both of us were passionate work, I mean, certainly there was sort of the sense that when we were at Google, you actually got to see a company operate itself in a way that felt a little futuristic and felt like it's like pointed at some tensions in, you know, sort of a prior generation, boomer generation of corporations, basically. And Mm -hmm. then there was this emergent, you know, sense that like, okay, millennials are entering the workforce, you know, companies are increasingly driven by knowledge work, not like all the other types of work that existed in the past. And there were new rules that had yet to be written. And there was also, of course, we believed a next generation set of ways of solving problems that created massive opportunities for, you know, certainly technologists like ourselves. So we actually really rapidly kind of shared that big picture kind of sense that the world was changing. It took us a lot longer to figure out like exactly what our contribution in the world was going to be. And actually the funny thing for us is we were open-minded. We could have solved any number of problems. Mm-hmm. I don't think we showed up with a passion for a specific solution. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's again the designer in me. You know, you don't start with a solution. You start by finding a need. So, you know, our very first pass at this, we just talked to a bunch of people and we were just like asking open-ended questions like what's the number one limiter to growth? what is the number one risk to revenue? When you get together and talk about why you missed a goal last quarter, like what was kind of the main factor or the root cause? And we weren't necessarily sure what we would get back. I think we thought maybe there'd be automation this or like, you know, big data that or, Hmm. you know, something. But actually, you know, we were stunned at how consistently everybody said hiring. I missed my hiring goals. I wasn't able to hire that key exec. We weren't able to make the, you know, director level hires to get that function spun up in time. Like we weren't able to hire the engineers to build the new product. Mm. I mean, I'm sure this resonates with you, Glenn, like every board meeting (laughs) that you're in, it's like hiring, right? It's the number one issue that every one of our portfolio company leaders faces. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And when users agree that vehemently and give you a signal like that clearly, you got to focus on it. So just to kind of deconstruct a little bit this process that you went through, I guess like a kind of a, a, a design process, right? Where you're really soliciting feedback. How structured were you in the process? Did yeah. you did you have like a, a, 
a very specific set of questions you were you were asking people and how did you categorize the data that you got back? Did you and Nate very specifically go after certain people or certain job titles that you were soliciting feedback from? Just curious how yeah, that, you know, that all came together. Yeah, you know, if you stand way far back and squint in your eyes, it looks kind of structured, but like <laughs> up close, I would say it was genuinely really open-ended. So after we did that initial and, and pass. How, lo- how long did it go? Yeah, so what I just described, that first pulse, that was fast. And we realized, like, we got to learn a lot about this recruiting thing. Okay. And so from there, we actually were able to have, I think, a pivotal experience for us as a company. It's really defined who we are. It's defined what our customers love about our product. It defined our point of view in our market. And that was we embedded ourselves inside of hyper-growth companies for about nine months to do open-ended user research. This is like genuine like anthropology. We're sort of going into the jungle to observe, you know, <laughs> the the ecosystem as it is. And so I, I think That's that awesome. it did a few things for us. Like one, obviously it was just like drinking from the fire hose. Like we learned so much about what it takes to go through hypergrowth. And probably the, the most dramatic story for us, like growth story at this time, was uh, Twitter going from like 700 to 1,500-ish employees in less than nine months, uh, a few offices in North America to expand internationally. You know, really, when I'm saying hypergrowth, it's it was pretty insane. And, you know, extreme users is a concept in design thinking and like yep. being able to find the right extreme user to show you what breaks in extreme situations. The idea is if you can find those things, those are actually the problems everybody has, but maybe can't articulate or can't right. like see. So we were able to just get really dense knowledge, one. Two, we were able to see not just how a recruiting team hires, but also how a whole organization goes through scaling and growth. And that really informed how we thought about the design of our platform because hiring is one of the most collaborative functions inside a whole company, right? Literally everybody in the company needs to interview. Every single manager needs to make hiring decisions. Uh, everybody, you'd hope, is making referrals and like aware of how they can pitch in and help. So I think getting access not just to a recruiting team, but a whole organization was really huge. And a lot of people ask us, like, how did you even find yourself there? So advice to all the founders out there, you got to be a little naive <laughs> to be a successful early stage founder. We just shot out a bunch of emails and we we're like introducing yourselves and saying what we wanted to do. And turns out that like somebody might say yes. You and know? so companies on cold email were receptive to you embedding yeah. and spending time. and really Yeah, asking. I think that the feeling was, you know, the solutions that exist in this category are so bad today. Yeah that will do anything. We'll like invite these smart, you know, Stanford Google people into our office in the hopes that something better can come along. There really was just this, I mean, I guess you could say appetite for something new, but I mean, just desperation almost in solving these hiring challenges. It's heartening to hear that people are open to it and also probably an indicative that they really felt the, the, the pain mm-hmm. because they must have it, it resonated with them with companies and they were rooting you know cheering yeah. you on hoping that you would build something that they could really use yeah totally so i mean we learned a lot we learned what to do we learned what not to do a lot of those tenants that you know defined our point of view on on how to hire like remain true today i think actually probably the number one thing that we saw then was that our category right it's called applicant tracking systems but 
applicants wasn't how anybody was hiring. Yep. <laughs> What's an applicant? Right? Yeah. So like posting a job stopped working. You know, you could post a job and that was effectively just inviting random strangers on the internet to use your time. Now that everything was digital, the disruption that sort of happened is it became so easy for the workforce to be fully global for like this process to be really easy. Like someone mm -hmm. could spend, you know, less than a minute clicking a few times and apply to hundreds of jobs. Yep. Like the kind of old kind of paradigm was like literally being broken by digital transformation and this next generation workforce. And so like, yeah, I think that a lot of our point of view and our solutions that came out of that really went through that design process. We did a lot of just open-ended user research, like I'd call observation. We did a lot of interviews and like asked people about how they were solving problems, how they would solve problems. And then we also did a lot of prototyping and had people use things. And our very first prototype was something that addressed the need you know, the people I want to hire, I can find them right here on this LinkedIn profile or this GitHub profile. But my whole system, it only lets me store them if they apply. And so I have to ask these people to apply to a job. And that just seems totally crazy because all the information I need is right there. Right. So our very first prototype was just this little browser extension that clipped a candidate from, you know, a profile online mm -hmm. into, you know, frankly, software that didn't do that much at that point, but into a place where they could communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. So you could at mention a hiring manager and get their thoughts. You could actually like kind of take notes and say, like, I reached out to this person on this date. That was the very, very first prototype. And it was so, it taught us so much. Obviously, eventually became like a backbone of the product, but like just answered so many questions we had as founders about like, was this something that people needed? Like, was this better than a spreadsheet? Every B2B company out there today is competing with a spreadsheet, yes. right? And so, like, I think, like, a lot of what we found out was like and spreadsheets you know, are getting better, by the way. Yeah, so the <laughs> there bar you is go. Up. So, you know, for us, it was like actually one of the biggest insights that we learned was the value wasn't necessarily like, oh yeah, we can spare you the copy pasting. That's fine, of course. That's like literally as valuable as the time that you spend mm -hmm. transferring the fields over. What was really valuable was that conversation that people could have internally. And like being able to centralize and systematize how the collaboration around hiring was happening in one single source of truth. And I think that's another lesson for any B2B founder out there is every SaaS product is a collaboration product. Mm. You know, that's just like table stakes of any kind of like millennial worker, any millennial buyer, decision maker, they expect all systems to support collaboration. Nobody wants to work in software by themselves. So, you know, I, I think that like I could go on and on about all the insights that we learned at that time that I think are just like speak to the future of, of B2B software. You've talked about how, you know, when companies do it well, and I think your product helps support this, when they are adding people successfully, they're really thinking about it as managing relationships, not unlike the way a sales pipeline is professionally managed. You have to manage this process as well and, you know, start relationships with people long before they are truly interested in a job or potential match for a job that you may have. Do you guys do that internally at Lever? And how does the product help support that kind of uh, process change. Oh my gosh, absolutely. In a word, what you're talking about is relationships, mm -hmm. right? And relationships have changed so many industries, sales, marketing. Like 
I guess I should say practices. Like if you're a sales leader and you're not thinking about customer relationships, like what are you really doing, right? And so relationships is absolutely how you win at talent, how you compete for engineering talent, how you pipeline your sales talent so that you have the quota capacity you need in time. Like, because it's a many layered concept. Like for one thing, relationships are how you hire the best people, right? Like the best don't apply. And if you're not building a relationship with them proactively and like reaching out to them with a personalized message and engaging them before they're ready to make a move, you know, you're never going to have a shot. Like the best thing that you can do is actually build a relationship, share your mission, externalize your culture to them, show them like kind of like what you're working on and why it's exciting and make sure that like when they do have that thought of like it's time to make a move, like get them to commit, like make us one of the people you call, right? And like companies, startups in particular that do this, uh, they are like actually accessing that top one, five, 10 percentile of talent that never is on the market and certainly is never applying. And uh, so I think relationships, first and foremost, is how you hire the best people. Yep. But secondly, I also think it's higher. It's how you hire more efficiently. And then thirdly, how you actually reach like predictability in your hiring. So on efficiently, you know, you would never run a sales pipeline the way a lot of companies run a hiring pipeline. What do I mean by that? Like a lot of people, when they need to hire someone, they kind of post a job. And if they're not getting the talent they need, they just like advertise it in more and more places and shove more things at the top of funnel. But then when you reach the end and you actually make the hire, you just throw all those people away <laughs> and never like look at them ever again. And that's crazy uh, because a lot of work went into finding those people, a lot of money went into advertising for the reach that let you get those people. So uh, I think a second thing that- Hopefully our portfolio company sales teams are not doing that. Marketing budgets are not- Right, I mean like straight. literally the value of your marketing function is yeah. the value of your database. And yet people aren't thinking about that, about talent today. So I mean, again, to all the operators out there, if you're not building a database of talent the same way that you're investing in your sales or your marketing database, you're throwing away the opportunity to have cumulative value Mm -hmm. over time. And you're always going to be hiring. So I think the second thing that we did is actually build much more of a CRM than you know what our category had previously had as like an applicant tracking system. And you know, as a CRM, what do you have to do? Well, you have to actually make it so that the value of the historical data that you have is like the first stop, like you go to search for candidates when you open a new role, where you're centralizing every communication, every touch point that you have. Like we have to sync not just emails, but in-mails, right? Because you want to yes. get every single, you know, touch point that anyone in your company might have had. And like I think that building a CRM so that you know companies, when they are looking for that hire, they're starting from not just like the people that know you the best, but they're in your database for a reason. Like you reached out to them at some point. Like that's like a huge accelerator to talent. And certainly some of our companies that I think are doing the best hiring, like customers are ours like Netflix or like Shopify, they're masters at this. And like every search that they're running, they start by going through and methodically reaching out to all the people that they've identified as like high potential from their own database. That's really smart. Yeah. Um, you, you've talked about that internally at, at Lever, you guys don't have job descriptions. You have, you have impact descriptions. Yeah. Um, you know, every CEO has a thing yeah. and that's totally my thing. That's like everybody thing. makes like snarky jokes about how like I'm just like so neurotic about like 
yeah, no job descriptions around here. <laughs> okay, so how has that impacted, like why'd you do it and how's that impacted the type of person you're bringing on? Yeah, so I think the insight was uh, way back when, like just after we closed our Series A, we did a team offsite to talk about hiring and scaling. Because frankly, prior to our Series A, we had been a tight knit, but like relatively small team for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like we weren't in a growth mode, we were in an execution mode. So then we closed this round and we knew we were going to grow and we were gonna hire a lot of people in roles we didn't even have, right? And we also probably were hiring people into kind of like, you know, very like, you know, people call it athlete roles, right? These generalist roles that they had to cover a lot of surface area because we couldn't afford to have specialists. So, you know, we were talking about a lot of things at this offsite. And uh, one of the kind of exercises that we did was like, you know, the job descriptions that exist online, they don't really work for us because we're too small and early stage for them. So let's just figure out like, what do these people have to do, right? Like what's the impact that we need them to have on one, three, six and 12 month basis. Mm. So we wrote that out and that was so clarifying for us. And we started obviously recruiting a bunch of people. And then when they got kind of late stage with us, then we were like, oh, well like, since like we've been talking for so long, let's show you this impact kind of like description that we've written out. I guess we didn't call them that. At the, let's show you this one, three, six, 12 month thing that we wrote out so that you can get excited about like what we, we need you to do. And the reception to that was like so profoundly, like people were like, this is amazing. Why didn't you just tell me this at the very beginning? I would have been even more excited. And so it took us embarrassingly long to realize, oh, this is a much better way to advertise this position. And, you know, once we flipped that to be like literally the way we represented jobs on our career site, uh, you know, here's the impact you'll have in one, three, six, 12 months instead of skills, requirements, like that sort of thing. We started seeing fundamentally like higher quality applicants as well, right? Like we actually started seeing that the caliber of people that were reaching out and saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not actually really job searching, but I saw the way you described this. And this is the kind of impact I want to have in my career. And this is like exactly kind of the growth I'm looking for right now. And I love that like there's growth in this role. And like, you know, I feel like I'm kind of stuck where I'm at. Like it was just a win-win for literally everyone. Like wow. for an employer like Lever, it was like being really candid about what we needed in the role. And it was much more informative in some senses on like what kind of our expectations were. Uh, on the candidate side, it was way more inspiring, way more like clear, like what was in it for them or like the opportunity. And I mean, like the third kind of nice benefit is onboarding, check. Like (laughs) you've already figured out like what this person's onboarding plan is and what for the most part their goals are. So, you know, that's something whenever I get in front of a room of startup founders, especially early stage founders where the jobs aren't super defined in the early days and you've got to think about it and you've got to make it custom to like what your, you know, small elite team has to, to do impact descriptions and flipping kind of like away from the traditional job description to this one, three, six, 12 month thing. It's like one of the best like hiring hacks uh, that exist. Very cool. Speaking of hacks, I want to just ask you a little bit about being a CEO. You're a first time CEO and company is over 200 people. It's growing quite a bit. So you're doing a lot of things for the first time. And it seems like you have some techniques that you've developed that are pretty unique. (laughs) this impact description as opposed to job description, which then helps you onboard better is clearly one of those. What are some other things that you've done as a CEO that maybe harken back to your design, education, and ethic that are uniquely, you know, uniquely you? 
I'm thinking about Ramp Camp, for example, which sounds really cool. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and your wandering ritual, <laughs> other stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, CEOs, they come in a lot of flavors. And for the most part, every CEO should play to their strengths and to, I guess, like where they gravitate to. You should listen to that and you should follow that to some degree. You know, I think in a way, like it, it is interesting we talked about the design thing because to me in my internal narrative about how I sort of get up every day as a CEO, it's really connected to design thinking because obviously a part of me is kind of sad that I don't literally get to work on designing our product anymore, but I still do design your, every your day. Desi- your design team doesn't doesn't let you. No, they do, but okay. you know, I trust them. Like, but here's the thing. I still do design every day. It's just that my users that I would do research with or whatever, they're actually my employees and my product is this company. Mm. And, you know, I still use all those muscles of like doing user research and prototyping and like using those prototypes as communication tools to get feedback and input and like using that kind of like repetitive cycle of, of innovation and prototyping here but you know, with how we operate, how we like kind of think about our culture, and certainly how we evolve all those things over time. So, you know, in that sense, I think a lot of what we've done in culture, like I'm really proud of, because like for one, I think there are like actual core like kind of results there that you know, like irrespective of the process that got there, like I think we have done a really great job hiring high caliber people. We recently opened an office in Toronto and took that office from zero to 50 employees in like half a year and have hired amazing people, like amazing people. Uh, Shout out all the folks in the Toronto office. Like, thank you. You guys are amazing. And then thirdly, we've been able to do it while also investing in things like diversity and inclusion. And like Lever has been maintaining a 50-50 gender ratio since, you know, 2016. And we are actually close to 50-50 in our R&D team, like 43%, I think, at the latest. Uh, 50-50 in our management org. We're actually 53% women in management and leadership. Like, that's just one dimension on Mm -hmm. kind of gender. But, like, actually, like, we're making a lot of progress. And, you know, I wouldn't say we're kind of anywhere near done. And you're never done because even just maintaining what you have uh, takes continued investment. But I think a lot of that comes from this feeling that the same... DNA that makes a founder innovative in their core product. They can use that in designing their culture. And, you know, to that extent, I credit like everything we've done to build this team here, to build our culture here, and certainly to kind of like make progress on DNI, which I know a lot of companies feel really stuck on. I credit a lot of that too, you know, at least for me, like just looking around with the same curiosity and problem-solving mindset that I have about anything. So yeah, we do a lot of like weird and cool things that I think are really awesome and usually have an origin story that is a cool little like user research insight or nugget and that we like certainly involve like our own employees as like participants Mm. and shaping and we get feedback from them and like, yeah, like it's kind of joyful, you know? Yeah, it sounds it. That's that's really cool. I'm glad you brought up diversity and inclusion. I wanted to ask you about it. How much of that ties back or... Going back to the Birmingham, Alabama mm, roots, yeah. can you draw some lines between your upbringing and your commitment and success with diversity and inclusion, which 
is really uh, unique. It stands out in a world where lots of companies are trying, but very few are having the results that you've had to date. Yeah, it's actually kind of weird for me to realize how all the experiences that you have in life, they end up making you who you are. So it shouldn't be surprising when things come full circle, but it sort of still is. So, yeah, I wasn't born in Alabama, but mm -hmm. you know, I moved there when I was young. My parents are still there, so it's very much home. But when I first moved there, it was definitely a shock. You know, in particular, the community I was in, super traditional community, like our, the kids in my school, their parents had been taught by the same teachers. Like I'm it was sure. a town yeah. and people like knew each other. They stuck around, very traditional, all the things that you'd maybe expect, kind of like was stereotypical in a weird way. And I was one of two non-white people in my high school of about 800. Wow. And, you know, it wasn't even just that there wasn't diversity. There was also just no awareness of diversity. There was no conversation about diversity. I actually don't think that it was even, you know, malignant because I didn't feel singled out and targeted so much as there just was this absence. Mm. Like, you know, when we were talking about like the Civil War in history class, like we would use the term we <laughs> to talk about the Confederacy, you know what I mean? Like it was just kind of like really benign in a weird way. But um, I did kind of like having this outsider's view, I like really struggled with this. And one of the things that I did was like, I got involved with the Civil Rights Institute in Birmingham as a high schooler, like just volunteering, doing a bunch of stuff which is an awesome institution. Yeah. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama, highly recommend going there. Uh, but actually what was amazing to me as a high schooler and still is to me now is like all the civil rights leaders, they're still alive and doing amazing work. They're there. They're actually like literally there. You can go meet with, like wow. meet them and hang out with them. So that was super attractive. And so I remember though, like a pivotal moment for me that I think has led to being a leader who takes very seriously uh, a sort of obligation and responsibility to create an inclusive environment for other people. Like I can probably trace that back to, I was part of a kind of workshop they were doing for high school students where they brought together people from a white high school with people from a black high school. They called them tolerance trainings, which I think is really funny. So I was at this thing and the whole program was designed uh, with this understanding that you were either white or black, like all the workshops, all the sessions, all the things, like all the like little post-it note whiteboard stuff. It was right. all sort of like baked in that paradigm. And so there was this one moment where they sort of were like, all right, great. You know, if you're white, go over there to that corner to do this thing. And if you're black, go to that corner and we'll do things in groups. And like everybody sort of splits up and does this thing. And it took kind of everybody like a minute to realize like I'm standing in the middle of this empty <laughs> room with everybody like doing their thing. And I'm just like, hello, <laughs> like where, what group should I be in? And, you know, I actually think that for one, literally the end of that story is like one of the facilitators like quickly was like, oh, crazy. All right, I'll come be your ally. Let's do this. We'll blah. And it became actually this really cool moment, not just for the other students that were there, but actually for the institution. They were like, holy cow, this is like really enlightening. And they gave me a platform. They actually gave me the opportunity to help work on the next iteration of that workshop. And I volunteered with their youth programs for like a few years after that. And like when Lever got started, D and I was not a topic. This is like, you know, in a time when it was not taken seriously. People didn't talk about it. Like even for me, I can remember the first time I heard the word inclusion, right? Like, so it wasn't in the air when Lever's founding team got started, but we always knew we were committed to it. I mean, myself personally, maybe for my reasons, Nate is very proudly like a gay entrepreneur, gay person in tech. Like I think all of us like really felt 
personally, like we had something at stake. But I think for me as a leader, why I feel it's my responsibility truly is that it's actually not that hard to have a program designed for more than two races. It's actually not that hard to mm. lens the things you do to accommodate lots of different types of people. You also have the license to be wrong. So long as when you see it, you respond, it's just not that hard. And so I think for me, like I've always believed that, you know, I'm part of a generation of technologists that have an opportunity and an obligation to think differently about how we want to lead. And, you know, you can't read the news nowadays without reading about something that frankly makes the world believe that the tech industry is full of a bunch of self-interested people that are just out to, I don't know, screw other people over. Yeah. And the people I know in tech, for the most part, like aren't like that. So I think it's like, I'm very proud for just inclusion to be a part of what we do. It's nice that it's kind of related to our actual core business. I never feel like I have to make a trade-off, but yeah. I think even if I was working on something completely different, <laughs> I think that it's just kind of a, a really great honor to be part of a generation of founders that I think actually have a mandate to do something different besides just scaling successful companies. Well, it's, it's awesome to hear about your origin story and how it's impacted the work you're doing, but it's incredibly important and also really great to see how well you're doing at it. And I think providing examples for other companies. We're actually sitting here in your office, which was Slack's old office. We were joking about it before. And Slack, as a company that I've been involved with as well, has really emphasized the importance of DNI and done a very good job at it. So maybe there's something about this building, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But I, I, uh, I look forward to the day when it's not in the air because it, it is the air. Um, yeah, it's like, wouldn't it be cool if DNI was kind of boring? You know, yeah. it was just so like everywhere we, we, we and so not, like normal that it's we just boring. We might be there at Lever, but we're not there yet. <laughs> okay, Sarah, this has been awesome. We're going to end with our speed round. So we're putting you on the hot seat. Oh, no. I'm just going to ask a couple of questions, say the first thing that comes to your mind. Tell us about your favorite book that you recommend for other founders. Okay, so many books that have influenced me. But, you know, since we've been talking a lot about design thinking and how... It is, I think, such a great toolkit to put in any entrepreneur's bag. Uh, I would say Creative Confidence is a great one. Uh, great introduction to all things design thinking. And the team behind uh, that work that the, the book talks about is, is stellar. My wife, as you know, is deep into design. And so I can tell you we have a lot of copies of Creative Confidence floating around <laughs> our house. So uh, hit up Glenn for okay. a copy of Creative <laughs> Confidence. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? It can be work-related or something outside of work. Yeah, you know, I think um, the best piece of advice was more or less just to like take time to look around. So an advisor of mine in college uh, gave me this advice and he was kind of specifically talking about, I don't know, like we were in that like last year of college and everybody's job searching and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And everybody's so hyper-focused on an outcome, like I need to find a job, right? But I think his kind of like thing came from, from his personal experience. You, you end up making the most significant parts, like decisions of your life. Usually if you trace them back to like some weird thing that happened when you cross the street and like saw someone that you knew or something some like that. Some sliding door moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's part of my door number two kind of like mentality yep. too. So like take time to look around. Cool. Other than utilizing Lever, what's a good tip for founders who are looking to build hiring and talent acquisition as a, as a core competency? 
Yeah, other than using Lover, <laughs> uh, I think go beyond applicants. Um, Tell you us know, what you mean by that. Like a lot of people think hiring starts by posting a job and then they just wait. And that's not how you're going to hire the 10Xers that change the trajectory of your business. That's not how you're going to hire your key execs. That's not even how you're going to hire the most talented new grads that you need to like build up your, you know, high growth potential kind of like, you know, ranks in every team. So, you know, what I think go beyond applicants means is actually work every channel Mm. and be proactive about it. So sometimes that looks like sourcing and nurturing people like proactively, like reaching out to people and asking them for coffee. Sometimes that means actually like building up like university programs, like referral programs, those sort of structural things so that you open up new structural channels. But actually one that I think is really important when you get to growth stage is internal mobility. Like start thinking about your own employee base as a channel and Mm. proactively reaching out to people when you know they're at that kind of milestone and actively recruit them for their second or their third job at your company. So, you know, anybody that thinks that hiring starts with posting a job and getting applicants, you're missing out on like the full technicolor of all the different channels that are out there. And so I would say that not only is that my bias, it's also how the best companies hire and it's how you outcompete like all those like better resource, like large companies for talent. And frankly, if you think about how a manager wants to like fill spots in the role, that's like where their brain's going anyways. So I would definitely say go beyond applicants. There's a rich, rich world of candidates to engage and relationships to build out there. And it only gets better over time. The more you kind of do it year after year after year, you get some crazy like boomerang stories. Like we oh, have hired sure. a ton of like wild, like, you know, crazy stories of like, you know, how people first got in touch with them, how we re-engaged, how we re-engaged again. Like, you know, it's great. And a lot of those turned out to be the 10 Xers, like you say. Every single one of them. Yeah. yeah. It's always worth it. It's always worth it when you go above and beyond to attract someone to your team. They pay back so much more. Well, talking about paying back, this is an episode that I'm sure lots of listeners are going to feel like has been well worth it. Amazing observations all the way from door number two, all the way down to going beyond the applicant. So thank you so much for your time and best of luck to Lever in the future. Thanks so much, Glenn. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.